It's Monday the 2nd of March and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, as trade talks between the EU and the UK begin, what can we expect from Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson? I think from the other side of the table, if you like, they'll be looking at Britain and really scratching their heads and finding Boris Johnson and his government a very, very difficult negotiating partner. Also ahead, Germany's new skilled immigration law comes into effect. How will this impact immigration into the country, particularly from outside the EU? Plus, we hear about the plans to upgrade Australia's rail infrastructure. I'm Tom Edwards in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. Trade talks between the UK and EU begin in earnest this week, and the EU faces the same challenge as anyone who's dealt with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson before, uncertainty over his seriousness. So far, we've heard some fairly hardline rhetoric from both sides as they've unveiled their opening positions. Monocle's Andrew Muller spoke with Lance Price, one-time Director of Communications for the former UK Prime Minister, Tony Blair. Andrew began by asking Lance what we should expect when the talks actually start. From the British side, I expect we'll see a lot of bluster, a lot of spin suggesting that Britain is taking a very hard line in these negotiations. And that's exactly what you would expect at the beginning of the talks. But I think from the other side of the table, if you like, they'll be looking at Britain and really scratching their heads and finding Boris Johnson and his government a very, very difficult negotiating partner partly because they believe that Britain massively overstates the cards that it has in its hands and the uh, the power it has to get what it wants. But it also looks back over Boris Johnson's relatively short period as uh, Prime Minister and notes that in the past, in these negotiations already, he has taken a strong position and then caved in massively, done a massive U-turn as he did over the border down the Irish Sea in order to get a deal, but also that he has made promises, said uh, that he will do things as he did in the political declaration, and then a few weeks or months later, torn that up and said he wants to start all over again. So that makes him a very, very difficult negotiating partner and somebody that the European Union side, the EU27, will find extraordinarily frustrating to deal with. Do you think, though, that the EU27 will, for all the reasons you've just outlined, be proceeding on the assumption that Boris Johnson is all huff and puff and that if faced with severe economic consequences for which he might be held responsible, he will cave? I think the EU27 will be assuming that Boris Johnson doesn't want to face the consequences of what everyone regards as a no-deal exit from the European Union at the end of the transition period, with all the chaos and all the damage to the British economy that that would involve, simply because they're politicians, they know he's a politician, and he doesn't want the Conservative Party to have the consequences of that around its neck. It could be Black Wednesday all over again with bells on. So I think they'll be assuming that Boris Johnson doesn't mean it when he says he's prepared to go down that route. And therefore, uh, as he has uh, in the past, they think that he'll be willing uh, when the time comes, perhaps at the last minute, with a lot of spin to pretend that it isn't a U-turn, to make big concessions in order to get the kind of deal uh, that he needs. But that's a very high-wire way of conducting negotiations. It seems to be the way that Boris Johnson uh, insists on 
doing things much to the frustration uh, of the EU side, but they are just going to have to live with it. Uh, How soon into this process do you imagine we're going to start getting a vaguely clear view of what the final agreement is going to look like? I suspect we won't get a clear idea until the June deadline. That's the first deadline by which uh, we both sides have said that they need to see that there's the shape of an agreement. Otherwise, Boris Johnson says he's going to take his bat away uh, and Britain will be simply concentrating on preparing for a no-deal exit. It may be, of course, that that deadline will slip a bit, that Boris Johnson will use all the bluster at his command. And we know there's a great deal of that to say, yeah, OK, no deal. We don't like what you're suggesting. We're just going to go it alone and dare the EU to either put up with that or come back to them. So each of the deadlines along the way, apart from the final deadline on the uh, at the end of the year, I think will be used for more grandstanding. And it may well be, as is so often the case in negotiations involving the European Union and indeed all uh, really major negotiations of this kind, the final concessions will come at the last minute. They'll be spun as not concessions uh, at all. And we still incredibly won't know exactly what the terms of our relationship with the European Union will be until perhaps the end or very close to the end uh, of this calendar year. Lance Price in conversation with Monocle's Andrew Muller. Rail travel is notoriously slow between major cities in Australia. But those travelling on the train line between the nation's capital and its largest city might soon find speeds picking up, with the country's top infrastructure adviser suggesting that federal and state funding efforts should be directed towards reducing travel times on the route. Monocle's Nick Manise has more. Infrastructure Australia the country's independent transport advisory body, has announced that state and federal governments should be working at full speed on enhancing the existing Sydney to Canberra rail link. In a plan released last week, track and signalling improvements were earmarked as priority upgrades for the route in 2020, in the hopes that improving rail services in the corridor would provide more transport options for travellers, improve travel time reliability and reduce pressure on the air corridor. They may not seem like much, but the report suggests that upgrades could help build momentum for its transformation into a high-speed rail link, an idea that has been toyed with by national governments for the past 40 years. An increase in travellers using the line, which currently only carries 1% of people travelling between the cities, could be an important step in proving to the government that there is demand and a need for high-speed rail down under. Germany's Skilled Immigration Act came into effect this Sunday. It's a practical and symbolic step to open up the country to non-EU migrants at a time when many other countries are getting more restrictive. Monocle's foreign editor, Christopher Chermack, reports. At a time when many countries are closing their borders, and I don't mean because of coronavirus... It's worth recognizing that Germany has taken a significant step in the other direction. This month, the Skilled Immigration Act comes into effect after more than a year of legislative drafts and sometimes contentious debate in Berlin. The law's aim is to encourage more non-EU immigration into the country. But it's worth noting as much for its symbolic power as for any practical steps to unlock immigration. Effectively, the law for the first time declares Germany a nation that is open to immigrants. That's because it ends a requirement for companies to prove that a German or EU citizen can't do the job before hiring someone outside the continent. 
Beyond that, it offers foreign students the opportunity to spend six months looking for a job in the country. And also, unlike a similar recent proposal in the UK, it doesn't apply merely to those industries that face worker shortages. Setting aside the social stigmas and rising support for anti-immigration parties, it's worth remembering that the economic rationale for such a law is clear. Germany needs immigration now more than ever. Unemployment is at a near-record low. More than half of all companies say their expansion is hampered by the fact that they can't find workers to fill the jobs they need. Its population is set to decline and get older. So economically, there's a simple case to allow more immigrants. But let's also take a moment to applaud a politically courageous step, one that represents a practical and necessary opening in this increasingly nationalistic society we live in. My thanks to Christopher Chermak. Elsewhere on today's agenda... Today sees Japanese Deputy Justice Minister Hiroyuki Yoshia meet his Lebanese counterpart in Beirut to try to convince her to hand back fugitive ex-Nissan chairman Carlos Ghosn. Japan is desperate for Ghosn to face trial, but Lebanon's Justice Minister so far failed to respond to an Interpol request for his return. The shift to diplomacy is a sign of the Shinzo Abe government's eagerness to resolve the issue. Aside from the embarrassment of his escape, carmaker Nissan has been in crisis since Ghosn's surprise ousting, recently reporting its first quarterly losses in a decade. Empty shop fronts continue to plague San Francisco, but residents are set to vote tomorrow on Prop D, which, if passed, would fine landlords whose properties have sat vacant for more than 182 days. The fine amounts to $250 per linear foot in year one and $1,000 after three years. Expected to raise $5 million annually to be reinvested into small business, the primary purpose is to disincentivize landlords from sitting on vacant properties in search of higher rents. Such taxes will hopefully breathe new life into struggling commercial streets, but cities should be careful how they impose them. Not all vacancies are the product of speculation. Do read more about today's stories by subscribing to our daily email bulletin at our website monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. The Monocle Minute returns tomorrow. Tomorrow.